Good morning, Soma Church. Uh, so this summer we've had our kids uh, joining us in the service, and um, you know I don't normally get to preach when all the kids are here, um, and so especially with the story today, I want to do something a little bit different. Um, and one of the things that we're going to be focusing on for our next ministry year is also is training and equipping our kids and parents and families. And so before we get rolling into Daniel 6, I want to invite all the kids that are still in service, if they wouldn't mind joining me up here real quick. I know you're probably deep into coloring and drawing. Go ahead and have a seat. All right. Awesome. Can I talk to you guys for a few minutes before uh, you guys go back off and, and color a little bit? Today we're going to talk about Daniel in the lion's den. Has anybody heard that story from the Bible before? Got a few, all of them, almost unanimous. All right, unanimous uh, have heard of Daniel in the lion's den. Um, so we're going to talk about that, but I want to talk to you guys a little bit first before we get to that point. Um, I think it's important that you guys know uh, what we're talking about in church and I think it's important for you guys to know what Daniel did and uh, who he served. So who knows how Daniel got into the lion's den? Catherine? He was praying, right? So why, was it, why did praying get him into the, the lion's den? Cohen? Yeah, there was a law that said that for 30 days, Daniel could not pray to his God, that they needed to, if they wanted to ask anything, they needed to go to the king. So how did Daniel get out? So he prayed, he was thrown to the lion's den. How did he get out? Anybody? Fletcher, what do you think? How did Daniel get out? He did it by himself. There was somebody that helped him. He prayed and was faithful. Somebody, this guy who helped him. Yeah, the angel came. He closed the mouth of the lions. So he spent all night in the lion's den, and, he, and God sent an angel to close the mouth of the lions. So he woke up the next morning, and he was fine, and the king got him out. And so there's a couple of things that I want to talk to you guys about is that, uh, oh, one, one last question, sorry. Does anybody here know if their name means anything? Does your name mean something? Catherine, what does your name mean? Your name means pure. Oh, that's really pretty. Cohen, what does your name mean? A priest, yeah. And Myla, what does your name mean? Soldier or merciful. And so Daniel's name meant something too. Daniel's name meant God is my judge. And so that's how he lived. He always knew that the most important person that he was supposed to serve was God. That he didn't, he wasn't mostly concerned about what his friends thought, what his boss thought. He was going to serve his God because God was his judge and he knew that. And so when it came time, when there was a law that says he couldn't pray, he knew that he still needed to talk to God because God was the most important thing that he wanted to serve. And so that's my, that's my same prayer and message for you guys too. As you guys go to school, um, and interact with your friends that you know that, that God is the most important person, thing that you can serve. 
that your friends are important, your, friend, your family's important, and those are great influences and people to have in your life. But what matters most is that you serve God, and you know that. So I'm going to go ahead and pray for us, and then uh, I'm going to ask you guys to go ahead and go back to your seats. And I'm so thankful you guys have been in, uh, in service with us this summer. I know your teachers are looking forward to uh, getting you back in the classroom. Um, and so that's coming up in the next uh, few weeks, I believe. And so I appreciate you guys being able to hear uh, throughout the summer what, uh, what us big people are talking about and unpacking God's word. So I'm going to go ahead and pray for us. Father God, Lord, uh, thank you for uh, the kids in our congregation. And Lord, there's so many that aren't here um, out traveling on vacation, Lord. I'm so thankful for the families and the way that you've blessed uh, the families in our congregation. Lord, I pray for the kids here and the kids abroad that, um, that they would, as they grow older, continue to know who they're living for. Lord, that you would press on their hearts, that you would draw them near to you, and that you would uh, protect them, preserve them in their faithfulness to serve you. We love you and we praise your name. Amen. All right, thanks for guys for coming up. Go ahead and have a seat with your parents. All right, so spoiler alert, you guys just heard the whole sermon, um, which, you know, is good because it's really stuffy in here. Um, and so, you know, we'll, 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 I did that at the risk of, of losing my, um, my advantage or my, um, I guess what I do, as, as you know that uh, a lot of times us four elders will rotate who preaches, and, you know, I don't have the, the finance or the Disney references that Dante does. Uh, I can't bring the historical significance that Tim does and certainly don't have the practice and experience that Kent does, but what I do is I can hit a time box. <laughs> so at, at, at risk of doing that, inviting the kids, I did want to spend some time uh, with them because one, the kids aren't always here. It is really hot. I'm, I'm really practicing to be an all-weather preacher, whether it's cold, uh, like we had a couple of years ago, it was 40 degrees, now it's you know, rainforest in here. Um, and so we're, we're going to be working through Daniel 6, uh, but wanted to, you know, spend that important time uh, with our kids. Um, so hopefully uh, I'm not going too far over uh, where I am and, and ruining what, uh, what I bring to the table in terms of the preaching calendar. But as you know, if you've been with us, we've been going, working our way through uh, the book of Daniel, and uh, we are now at Daniel 6. And so um, we are, this ends kind of the, the narrative portion of the book of Daniel, and we're going to be heading into the uh, prophetic um, and vision part of Daniel. So good luck, Kent, with that. Um, I'm glad that I'm landing here on Daniel 6, and uh, we're going to be spending some time in there. And so join, uh, turn with me to Daniel 6. Uh, we're going to take this kind of chunk by chunk and work our way through the text. Starting at verse 1, it pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom, and over them three presidents, of whom Daniel was one. Uh, to, to, uh, was, was one, to, to whom those uh, satraps should give account, and so that the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other presidents and satraps, because an excellent spirit was in him. So and it's important to tar talk about at the, the first, you know, who is this Darius guy? If you remember from last week, uh, the Babylonians were uh, defeated by the Persians, uh, and so this, this Darius, King Darius, uh, is, is likely a reference to possibly Cyrus, uh, but also looking at the uh, historical significance and the, and the titles. It also may have just been a title uh, to uh, a guy named uh, Gabrias, which was a general that invaded on behalf of King Cyrus into Babylon. Um, and so likely he, uh, Gabrias was essentially the king's represent, representative to 
what was Babylon and now into the area that Daniel is in. And uh, I've got a few slides. We can jump to that first one. Maybe. There we go. Uh, and uh, yeah, so to look back at kind of where we're at, we're also closing in on, um, you know, Daniel's, you know, kind of the close of his career. He's uh, in his 80s now. Um, as if you remember that he started as a teenager uh, in Babylon. And uh, after um, Judea was, uh, was captured and he was exiled over there. So I want to, it's important to, to understand Daniel's why throughout his entire career. We've read a lot about what he's done and he is, his friends have done the books. Let's look back at, at his why. And to, to really look at that, we turn back to Jeremiah 29, where Jeremiah is writing to the exiles uh, from Judea that are now into, in Babylon. He encourages them. It's a really long chapter. Summarized it here in a couple of lines here. But he encourages them to build, build houses, to plant food and eat it. He encourages them to marry their sons and daughters and to reproduce and have kids. He also says to seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. And so he, he wants them to live into this new community. He wants them to not just sit and sit idly by, but he wants to, one, acknowledge um, their punishment and their exile where they're at, but also to not just sit still. He wants them to live into this community, but he also importantly tells them to not separate themselves from him. He wants them to continue to live for him, to be rooted in him, because he's going to bring them back out. He's going to, um, he's going to call them back out of exile. And so we look at this as Daniel's wise. His summary, uh, to sum, sum it up, is that he, he, he lived and his career was to live in the community, but to continually stay rooted in God. So if we look at Daniel's why, let's also look at his what over his career. If you can head to the next one. That Daniel's resume was pretty stellar. Um, as you can see here, again, if you look back, remember in chapter one, he came in as a teenager, had the whole food incident. And um, then you can see that he has been praised, received accolades, promotions all throughout chapters two. Um, and um, just really th throughout the book, you can see that over his roughly 66-year career in the government, um, he's, he's accomplished some things. He spent his entire year, in, or entire career in the public sector, and one of the reasons that resonates with me is that, if you don't know, I, I guess I, didn't, I don't think I introduced myself, I'm John, I'm one of the uh, non-staff elders here, and so uh, I'm not paid by Soma Church. I work in the uh, insurance industry as my 40 hours, of work, uh, 40 hours during the week, and so I resonate to a good extent with Daniel in the sense that he spent his whole career in government, he, in the marketplace, not in necessarily vocational ministry. He spent it serving others. He had bosses. He had coworkers. He had uh, direct reports. Um, and just to see how he navigated that all while staying rooted in God is completely uh, amazing. And so if I was going to pick a corporate mentor that I could choose, why not? Let's choose Daniel um, to see how he navigated all, these, all of these different scenarios that he was placed with. And I think it's also important to remind ourselves that Daniel spent his entire career in the public sector as a reminder to all of us that ministry is not dependent on our vocation. That, yes, Kent is, is, a, is the pastor here, and he gets paid um, to do a lot of ministerial things, but that we all have that same call that he does, that, which is to take the gospel forward, whether we're paid to do so or whether we're paid to be a nurse, a teacher, and a lowly insurance professional, 
that wherever we're at, we are called to live for God, to take that gospel forward, whether we're paid to or not. And so we don't need to be a professional Christ follower. We just need to be professionals that are following Christ. No matter if that means in the public sector, if that means in the private sector, whether you work for a public company, private company, or a sole proprietor, it means if you work in the home sector, if you spend your 40 hours taking care of your kids and your family, or whether you're a student, whether our elementary kids that were down here, whether you're in high school, middle school, college, post-secondary, that that's your profession where God has you right now. And so the call is to continue to minister to those that are around you, whether you're paid to or not. So we see Daniel's, his why and his what. Let's take a look at his how as we look into this first section of chapter 6, is that how he did and accomplished all those things was really largely attributed to or solely attributed to the spirit that was in him, as we see in verse 3. And uh, that's not a unique thing to this uh, to this chapter. We saw it last week as Dante was preaching. We've seen it in, in chapter 1 and 4 that this idea that Daniel's spirit was really the source and the, um, uh, and the, the character that he had was, was really because of the spirit of God being in him and being noticed by those around his bosses um, and those around him noticed that there's something different about this guy. So what an amazing you know, uh, progress review or performance review up on that screen if you were... Um, you know, Daniel gets to his progress review, and the king's like, you know what, I ju- you're, you just have an excellent spirit. I just see God in you. Um, but what a, what a testimony to how he's living and what he's living for. And so we see his how, his what, his why. If you go to the next slide, we're going to put it all together. That Daniel lived into his name. As I talked with the kids before, that Daniel's meant God is my judge. So he wasn't living to make a name for himself. He was working to make God's name name great, not his own. As we'll see, that was a very different concept from those around him. So why Daniel worked was to make God's name great. What he accomplished was due because God was in him and he wanted to serve him. And how he accomplished it was through the power of God. And uh, as, as a result, God continually blessed him throughout his career and his life. And so we see another promotion is coming if you jump back into the text with me, finishing off in chapter, or in verse 3. And the king planned to set him, Daniel, over the whole kingdom. Then the presidents and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom, but they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful, and no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, we shall not find any ground or complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. So we get this new promotion for Daniel, um, and let's, let's rem- remind ourselves of why this organizational structure was put into place back in verse 2. It was a simple objective, is that so the king would not suffer loss. Just as public companies exist to maximize shareholder wealth, this organizational structure was designed to prevent the king from suffering any loss. And so at first, Daniel is one of the three presidents that's put out there, probably roughly over 40 of the kind of regional governors that were under, uh, that reported to him. And it doesn't necessarily say how, but King Darius decides that, you know what, again, to make sure that we don't have any loss for the king who he's reporting to, 
we need to make sure that um, the best way to do that is so that Daniel is now in charge of everyone. So now he's in charge of all three presidents, all 120 satraps. And um, this is obviously going to spark some jealousy from those that he either reported to or were coworkers with. They're going to say, shoot, either they're trying to climb the ladder themselves or possibly they were uh, corrupt themselves. People are sinful, have been since... Uh, since the Adam and Eve, and uh, the government sector is no stranger to those that are corrupt, that take kickbacks, and so have to believe that in this, uh, this time that there are going to be those that were not, um, were not on the up and up, were not honorable man, men, simply by the fact that they're trying to get rid of Daniel uh, is certainly proof enough of that, that they have questionable moral, moral character. So they, jealousy arose, greed arose, and they decide that Daniel's had the same jobs that we've had. He's got to have some skeletons somewhere, right? That he's probably taken a kickback, he's bribed somebody. There's no way this guy has that much success without having dirt on somebody. Um, and so they start looking to figure out how do we disqualify him? How, what do we take to King Darius to say, you've got to get rid of Daniel? So they look, but they could not find a complaint. They couldn't find a fault. They couldn't find an error in him. And as they're, I have to, when they're, as they're looking into Daniel, they've got to notice that this guy is different. He has no fault. He's not corrupt. And even if maybe one of the persons, this is their first time into corruption, they've got to see the people around them that they're working with, that there's got to be some corruption. They also find, as we'll explore here in, in verse 10, uh, that Daniel has a key performance metric of, that he prays three times a day. It's pretty obvious his window's open. We'll get into that in a little bit. But it's not going to be hard for them to get this information that Daniel prays. And so they realize the only way that we can make fault with Daniel is to create this law that you cannot petition anyone but King Darius so that now Daniel can't pray. And if he does, we'll catch him. If he doesn't, we're cutting off his source. So they go to... Um, oh, first, so... Um, as they realize that Daniel's different, um, they see that he's, again, not living to make his name great. He's living to make God's name great. That God is his judge. So they make it illegal. And I think it's interesting, as we, can we go to the, the next slide there, that we see a couple things in, uh, in the persecution. That there's going to be, when you're living for God, there's going to be a couple of reactions, as we have already seen in this first couple of verses, that there's those that are going to appreciate, at the very least, the character and the qualities and the morals that somebody has of, of somebody following God. Certainly his bosses gave him those glowing reviews, even if they didn't necessarily believe in the same God Daniel did. They appreciated the character that he had in representing God. There's also going to be those that disdain or persecute you for following God, for us following Christ. And that that is to be expected. Either they just hate religion, maybe they hate God themselves, maybe they hate Jesus, maybe they just want to undermine somebody else's blessings. They're jealous. And that when God sees us living for him, he certainly gives us blessings. So maybe they're trying to cut that out. As we look at further example, Matthew 5, uh, verse 10, if you want to jump over there with me, you can. 
that we see on the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you until all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecute the prophets, for so they persecute the prophets who were before you. Also jump into John 15. I'm training my, my introdante right now. You're going to get paper cuts or carpal tunnel. If you jump over to John 15, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, because you were not, but because you are not of the world, that I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. When you follow God, when you live for Christ, your, your life is going to look different. It just is. It's promised here in John that you're going to look different. And there's going to be some people that appreciate that. There's going to be some people that, that hate that. And so I guess the, what I'm reminded of is we want to be, continue to live out that call to be in our community, to do what Jeremiah said, to live into and build houses and have families and marry our kids and work in the public, private, home sector. But also, we need to be aware that some people are, not going, are going to look at our life and living for God, most of all, that are not going to appreciate that, that we're going to look different. And so these men that didn't appreciate what Daniel was living for, that lived contra to what Daniel lived for, set this trap for him. So knowing that they've got to try to get some way, in some way between he and his God, they go to Darius. If you jump over the next one. That he appealed to Darius's sense of pride, saying, Darius, we want everybody to come to you for 30 days. This is a polytheistic uh, society. You know, the, the Persians had Zoroastrianism as a, as a primary religion that they, um, that they practiced, but they really didn't care the places that they conquered. They didn't care if, you, if the people still continued to practice their religion. So it wasn't necessarily like, oh, Darius, you're the god. They didn't really care necessarily who people were praying to and that he, Darius saw himself as a god, but I think he also saw that, hey, this is, you know, that would be pretty cool. Everybody has to ask me for stuff, uh, not knowing that, you know, somebody wants to make a peanut butter jelly sandwich that week. Uh, or what they're going to eat for lunch, what ice cream flavor they're going to eat. Like, that seems like a lot of requests. So I don't think he really thought that th all the way through. But also, it's a way to just say that, hey, I'm powerful, that everything comes through me in this new organizational structure. I'm the top dog. Everything comes through me. So these uh, co-workers of, of, uh, of Daniel take this idea to Darius, say, everybody's got to ask you for stuff for the next 30 days. And anybody that violates that has got to go to the lion's. And it's important to know that as this law is being passed, that under the Median and Persian law, that once the law is set, it cannot be changed. And so there arises this crisis with Daniel that we pick up in verse 10, where it is now against the law for Daniel to pray to God. So we pick up in verse 10. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day, and prayed. Gave thanks before his God as he had previously done. So one of the more interesting clauses to me in this whole verse is really that last one, as he had previously done. I mean, in the face of crisis, this isn't an overly profound statement of, what's Daniel going to do? 
did what he always did. Not terribly profound, but when you look at what he did, it was the most profound thing he could have done when facing crisis and wanting to serve his God. That he went home, and what he had previously done is he went home, he pointed himself to Jerusalem. At this point, the, um, the tabernacle would have been destroyed, but still he pointed him, his face to Jerusalem, which in that time was where God was housed in the Holy of Holies in Jerusalem when the temple was still standing. That's where God was housed. So he's basically he's pointing his posture to God. He's pointing his face to God. Get down on his knees. This was an important man, right? Daniel was obviously somebody that people waited on. Very few people um, was Daniel waiting for. People would give him accounts. He was busy. He was important, but he got down on his knees. He humbled himself before what he was truly serving, his God. And he prayed three times a day. I think that is, in that last part, that three times a day, and maybe it's an arbitrary number, but I look at my own, my own life, career, kids, family, church, friends, and I'm not praying three times a day like Daniel is. My guess is you probably aren't either. If you are, let me know how you practice these rhythms. Um, we're getting into that. Um, but I, I'm not doing this. And he was far more busy, important than I in terms of his job, people that were depending on him, but yet he still took the time every day. And so in the face of this crisis, if you jump to the next slide, Daniel had a choice that he could be guided by his foundational relationship with God when presented with a punch in the face, or he could literally do anything else. I think sometimes we look at this passage and see, well, he either had to pray to Darius or God. It's not really the choice he had. He could have just said, well, I'm just not going to pray for 30 days. I'm going to get by on technicalities. Maybe I'm going to close my windows now so that, you know what, they can't catch me if they can't see me. And so I'm going to keep praying just now with my windows closed. But he decided that he's going to do what he always did. He's going to tap into the spiritual disciplines that he had built in building his foundational relationship with God. And so by the grace of God and through that, those spiritual disciplines of, of praying three times a day, of knowing God, of spending time with God, because that's what he had. He didn't have the red letters of Jesus to be able to read at that point. Um, again, Gutenberg had lived, so the widespread printing of the Bible was not available to him. And so what he had was prayer and connection with God. And so he tapped into that. That's how he built his foundation with God. And so same rings true for us, that what we do now, not in crisis, building that foundation through Jesus with our God and what he has for us in the text, where we can read the red letters of Jesus. We can see what Paul did. We can see how the other servants in the Old Testament lived out for God, that we have that opportunity. We need to be practicing those spiritual disciplines to build that foundation with God. So when the crisis comes, we do what we always did. We look to see what, what Jesus had to say with it, see what the Bible, what the scriptures have to say about whatever situation that we're in. Because again, it, it, the simple answer of he did what he always did is not terribly profound, but what he did in praying and seeking the advice of God, of putting him, humbling himself before what he was living for was the most profound thing that he could do. So as we jump back in, 
working our way through uh, the text and as sweat is pouring off me, we'll go ahead and, and summarize that what happened in response is that obviously Daniel's co-workers ratted him out. They caught him. They took him to Darius and said, Daniel's praying, just like he always does. Instantly, Darius has to know that, shoot, I've been had. They've tricked me. He doesn't want to lose his best worker, so he spends all day trying to figure out how to get Daniel out of this, although fully knowing that whatever law was set is going to stick. And so these co-workers of Daniel keep coming back and reminding him, it's got to stick. He's got to be punished today. That's the law. You can't take this away. You've got to put him in, in the lion's den. And so we pick up in, uh, in verse 16 with me. When the king commanded and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions, the king declared, Daniel, may your God whom you serve continually deliver you. And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet, with the sign of the Lord's, that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. I love that they roll a stone over it. Sounds like somebody else I know. And as we work our way down, the king couldn't sleep all night, so he comes back the next morning. Verse 20, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God whom you serve continually been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths, and they have not harmed me because I was found blameless before him. And also before you, O king, I have done no harm. So one of the things that, if you can go ahead and put that slide up, and in doing my prep, I listened to a lot of other sermons, and I don't honestly know who to attribute this to because I've heard a lot of people say this, so just know that it's not my own. Um, but there's several ways that God can deliver us from trials and from pain. Is that sometimes he can deliver us from the trials, as we saw in chapter 1. That happened with Daniel. He was delivered from the pain through uh, getting fatter, only eating vegetables. Um, that sometimes he delivers us through the trials, as we see here in the den, that Daniel went to the lion's den. Everybody was expecting him just to get gnashed up, eaten up, and get his bones spitting out. But God delivered him through. We also see at times that, that God may deliver to himself in trials as we see actually with, with Paul in the, in the New Testament, the martyrs in the New Testament, that there were times where they faced trials and they were taken home to Jesus. They were taken home to God as servants. And so he delivered them even in the trials to himself. So it's important to remember that when, that when we're faithful, that God will continue to show up, whether it's from trials through trials, or even in trials, delivering us through him, that what he asks of us is faithfulness in him, to trust in him. And he came, and he, in Daniel's case, he shut the mouth of a lion. He was spared. And interesting, as a result, they pull him out of the lion's den. They take all of those that were conspiring against Daniel, take them, they and their whole families, tells you what kind of government Daniel was trying to operate through, take the whole families and throw them in the lion's den. They were gobbled up immediately. So those lions were hungry. But because of the angels shutting their mouths, they weren't able to eat Daniel. So as a result, King Darius then delivered the decree for people to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God, enduring forever. 
His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. As a result, Daniel continued to prosper throughout the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. And so we see a couple of things from Daniel. We see that he continually lived into the culture, into the job that he had, but he lived for God. He lived to make God's name great. We see that uh, in the face of crisis, he just resorted back to what he had always done, which was to tap into the source of his strength, the source of his success and who he was living for, which was God the Father. And that, he w- that God was faithful to, li- to deliver him from the lion's den and through the lion's den. So I just ask that you guys continue to um, think about what this means for you. There's so many different facets you can pull out of the story. Um, you know, if you're looking for one on prayer, highly recommend Beth Moore's. That was excellent on, on, the, on focusing on the prayer part. But continue to examine Daniel's life as we continue on in the book to see what is my call? How am I ministering to those that are around me? Whether it's in my house, in my place of work. There's no nine to five for doing ministry, for living for God. We do that 24-7, 365 all the time. There's no time clock. We don't punch in and punch out. And as we wrap up here, it's also important to, I think it's interesting, I didn't have a lot of time to spend here, but interesting, just the similarities that we also see with Daniel and Christ, that the stone was rolled in front of him, that he was, he was set up by those around him, but he was blameless, and God preserved him, and that God, through Jesus, Jesus being blameless, Jesus took the ultimate pain, took the ultimate um, trial that we deserved, and he took that on himself for us, so that we can be delivered from eternal hell. And so we represent that, we practice that, and remind ourselves of that each week as we take communion. And so I know those folks are going to go off and, and grab those, those elements. But for those of you that um, maybe this is your first time or not knowing what communion is, but it's a time for us to remember what Christ did for us. Christ led a perfect and blameless life. You know, I said I want Daniel to be my corporate mentor, but I want my life to emulate Christ because he was, he was perfect. He's what we're called to, to be. He was perfect and blameless, set up by those around him, died on a cross for our sins, but was resurrected because he was blameless in the sight of the Father. And so he, he raised him for the dead on our behalf so that we can be carried through our trials and tribulations to him. So we practice that each week of communion. There's a bread and a cup. The night before Jesus died, he broke some bread with his followers at the time. So this is my body broken for you. He dipped it in the wine. So this is my blood poured out for you. And he just asks us that to rhythmically remind ourselves by doing this, by dipping the bread and the wine to remember what Christ's body was broken for us, that his blood was shed for us. And so for those of you that follow Jesus, that live for him, um, we invite you to come and take some bread, dip it in the, in the cup here, and uh, to remember what, uh, what God has done for us through his son Jesus.